Welcome to the Mr. Fitz Podcast. On this special episode, Fox Business and CNBC commentator Kenny Polcari shares his firsthand experience from the World Trade Center. And as they walk outside, this one guy, the one guy that came in to say to me, come on, let's go to breakfast, he had a bug up his ass. For whatever reason this day, he just said to the other three, you guys go across the street, go get the table, I'm going back up to get Kenny. Friends of mine who worked in Manhattan, who saw this happening on TV, who knew I had a World Trade Center address, called my wife to say to her, where's Kenny? What building is he in? What floor is he on? And my wife says, you know, why? So they said to her, turn the TV on. So sit back and enjoy this riveting story of survival and healing after a national and very personal tragedy. Today, it is our absolute honor to bring you an interview with Mr. Kenny Polkari. Kenny is the founder and CEO of Case Capital Advisors, senior market strategist of Slate Stone Wealth, a Fox Business, CNBC, and CNN financial commentator. As a former member of the New York Stock Exchange since 1985, he brings over 30 years of executive management experience in institutional equities and wealth management, and 25 years of stewardship and industry advocacy. Kenny's a former board member of the National Organization of Investment Professionals and is currently an advisory board member for Headstrong Project, a nonprofit providing free treatment to veterans with PTSD. Kenny, we are thankful for having you here today, and we look forward to everything you get to share with us. <laughs> All right. How much time do we have? Because you know me, I can talk. <laughs> All the time could, you need. But I, you could, I could stay here and talk for hours, but please do. Um, but, <laughs> But, uh, uh, you know, you, 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 you highlighted it. I spent 40 years on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange as an institutional floor broker. I went there when I was 19 years old. I had no idea what, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be a politician. I was going to school in Washington, D.C. You know, I was going to be a politician and a lawyer and then ultimately president of the United States, which thank God that did not happen because being president of the United States is the last thing I want to do. But I had the opportunity when I was a kid to go intern on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Now, I'm not from New York. I'm from Boston. Uh, I had no idea what, you know, New York City was, was. I mean, I'd never been there. I didn't know what the New York Stock Exchange was. I didn't know a stock from bond to buy from sell an eighth of a quarter. I knew nothing about it. And I thought to myself when I was first offered the opportunity, like 19 years old, why would I want to move to New York City in the summertime when I was a kid who spent my summers on Cape Cod? And I had every intention of going back to the Cape at 19 years old to be a lifeguard on the beach after my freshman year in college. You know, that was what was in my head. But after I went there and I met these a couple of guys, saw this opportunity, I thought to myself, you know what? What's the worst that's going to happen? The worst that's going to happen is I'm going to go there. I'm going to have this experience. I'm not going to like it. And I'll move on. I'll put on my resume and I'll move on. Or who knows? I could go there and I could have this great experience and it could change the course of my life. Well, <laughs> I guess you know what happened because I went and it clearly changed the course of my life. That whole idea of going to school in D.C. and you know becoming a politician and a lawyer and the president went right out the window. And uh, I got bit by the bug because if you've ever been to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and today it's very different than what it was then, right? So let's just let's just make that clear. Then there were 5,500 type A personalities running around the place, screaming and yelling all day long. It was full of energy, and it and it fed right into who I was, right? I mean, it was like I, I went there every day, like it was like it, it was amazing the energy because you know type A's they feed off of each other, right? They feed off the energy, and so. Um, 
It was the most amazing place. And so I did it for the summer of 80, 81, 82 while I was in college. And then I got a, I got a job offer in the, in the summer of 82 for, upon graduation in 83. And what was really interesting about that, that people should understand, is remember what 1980, 81, and 82 was like in this country. We had just come through Jimmy Carter. We had just, you know, the, the Iranian hostage crisis. The economy was a disaster. Inflation was out of control. Interest rates got jacked up to 21%. And anybody in this country who had any money at all had two choices with their money, really, right? They could take their money and walk to the bank and give it to the banker who's going to put it in a CD, and you're going to get 21% of your money guaranteed. There was no risk. You could sleep at night. There was never a question. You didn't have to worry about earnings. You didn't have to worry about earnings per share and, 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 and factors that were going to affect the stocks. You just give your money to the bank and earn 21%. Or you could go out and buy American Telephone and Johnson & Johnson and General Electric, which are fine companies, but there's risk in owning stocks, right, as we know. Um, and so all the money, you know, in 1980, 81, 82 was, was at the banks because of what interest rates were doing. People thought, you know, why would I, why would I risk my money when the bank is going to pay me 21% on my money? Just think about that for one minute. And so in 1982, the Dow was trading at 800, 790, 800. The, the, the movement, the daily movement, the Dow used to be, it was up 25 cents. Maybe it was down 50 cents. Maybe on a good day, it was up, you know, a buck or one point it was a big move in the Dow then, right? We used to trade 30 million shares a day, 30 million. Today, we'll trade 30 million in about the first two and a half minutes, right? Um but anyway, it was this amazing place. And in the summer of 1982, it was actually August 17th. I'll never forget it because I remember it like it was yesterday, was the day that the Fed came out for anyone who's who's in my generation who would remember um, interest rates were 21%. Inflation had been you know closer to 13%. Unemployment was 10%. The economy was a disaster. Um, and with the country was in recession because Paul Volcker had forced interest rates so high that you know he destroyed demand. Right and destroyed and did ultimately end up destroying inflation, but not without all this pain. And so, um, on this Tuesday, uh, the Fed came out and made a surprise announcement. And they showed up at eight thirty, and they 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 he opened the door, he walked out to the podium, and he said, "Okay, the Fed was cutting rates by ten percent." Think about what I just said: ten percent. Ten percent is two percentage points. When rates are twenty percent, ten percent is two percentage points. Right. So. Um, that's a huge move. Today, they're talking about raising rates by a quarter of 1% or a half a percent, and everyone's having a nervous breakdown. So then he cut rates, and I'll never forget it, because it was the most amazing day. Like, I can feel the energy right now as I'm telling you this story, because remember, there was no Google, there was no internet, there was no LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. It was none of that stuff didn't exist. Um, and there was no television on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, nor was there any radios. And the only way you got the information was when somebody from the outside picked up the phone to tell you what had happened. Anyway, that happened. If you remember, that was the birth of the greatest bull market this country in this world has ever seen. The Dow traded up four and a half percent, which was the equivalent of 35 points because the Dow was trading at 792. We traded 138 million shares on that Tuesday, which was four times what we had traded on Monday or the Friday or the Thursday before, right? It was an incredible moment in history. And I was standing right in the center of it. It was amazing. Uh, and so he offered me this job upon graduation, which was the following May, 1983. 
Now, again, what's significant about this is that kids getting out of college couldn't get jobs in 1982, right? Because the economy was a disaster. And guys that were my age, right, guys that were 50 and 60, they were getting thrown out. Because, you know, they were as businesses were trying to cut costs, all that stuff, they were getting rid of the, you know, the old white guys that were getting that were getting paid a lot of money. They were throwing them out. That's fat. Yeah. Yeah. The fat guys. Right. (laughs) And uh, and so it was a disaster. And um, uh, and and so when I got this job, when this happened and the market took off, I got this job opportunity nine months out. I was clicking my heels when I went back to college because it was the greatest thing in the world. Right. I went back to college. I didn't I didn't write a resume. I didn't go on an interview, which probably in retrospect was not the right thing to do. But I was so excited about having this job. I didn't want to work anywhere else. Right. So I had the greatest senior year of my life. And then I graduated. I moved to New York in uh in uh, July of 83. Now, look, I'm a kid from Boston, the middle of five kids from a Boston Italian family. You know, if you know anything about Italian mothers, Italian mothers want you like this and they want their boys to marry the girl next door. And then they want you to buy the house next door. And then they want you to live next door to them for the rest of your life. And so when I moved to New York, my mother wasn't really happy. Uh, and, and I said, Ma, don't worry about it. It's only going to be a f- for a couple of years. You know, meanwhile, it was 40 years later because I, I, I fell in love with not only the business, with the place. I met my wife on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, um, who, by the way, you know, has got her own story because she's Hispanic. She's Puerto Rican. She started working there as a kid out of high school, as a summer intern, as a, as a, a squad at the very lowest rung you could ever imagine. You know, it was the kid that the, the squads were the kids that ran back and forth. They ran the messages back and forth between the broker and the crowd. Um, but that's where she started. She ultimately became a member of the New York Stock Exchange in 1984, about a year and a half before I became a member, at a time when there were 10 or 12 female members out of 1,366. She was one of those women that, you know, she was hitting her head in the glass ceiling and she finally said, screw it, you know, and she and she pushed and pushed and uh, and became a member. And actually, what's really interesting is that we were dating at the time. She's a couple years older than I am. She, we were dating at the time. And when she had this opportunity to become a member of the New York Stock Exchange, she, she sat back to debate it in her head. And I said to her, I'm confused. Why, why are you even thinking about this? Like, why are you not just doing it? And she was afraid that if she had become a member and I wasn't a member, that my ego would have been bruised, that I would have been mm. embarrassed that my girlfriend is a member and I'm a clerk. It was all bullshit. And, and I said to her, listen, here's the deal. If you don't take that job, if you don't become a member of the New York Stock Exchange, I'm breaking up with you because that's not the kind of woman <laughs> I want. I said, I said, you, you have to do this. You're crazy yeah. not to do this. It's history. And so she did it. And then I became a member, you know, a year and a half later. And then we got married. She had her business. I had my business. And then six months later, she got pregnant. She ran around until she was eight months pregnant. And then you just, at that point, you just couldn't do it anymore because you're on your feet all day long, running around, screaming out. And, uh, and then she, you know, stayed home and that part of the rest is history. But anyway, um, so I, I, I was there and I spent, you know, I had, I worked for an independent broker and then uh, he retired. I went to work for SD Warburg, which was a British brokerage house. And then I went to work for uh, Solomon brothers at 30, 33 years old. I got the opportunity to run and manage the whole New York stock exchange division at Solomon brothers. Now Solomon brothers doesn't exist anymore, but Solomon brothers is a big institutional broker not a retail broker like Smith Barney or Payne Weber. 
It was a big institutional broker that made their money by committing capital to trades to institutions when they wanted to, you know, they wanted to get into positions or out of positions, you know, they'd go to Solomon and say, listen, I got to buy 2 million shares of ExxonMobil, get me started on 500,000 shares. And so Solomon would have to commit the capital to get that trade done. It was, it was, it was an incredible place to work. And so I was 32 or 33 years old. It was 19, uh, it was 1985. So, uh, Actually, I was 34 years old because I was born in 61, right? So, um, and it was the it was one of the greatest jobs I ever had. One way or the other, that got taken out in 1997 by Sandy Wilds at the at was what was Smith Barney, which became Citibank. Um, and I went out on my own. I then started my own business again and uh, uh, took all these tests. They started to they they broke down the the, the government the SEC. Uh, eliminated what was then known as the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated, you know, brokers on the floor uh, from seeking directly at institutions. You had to go through a broker like a Goldman or a Bear Stearns or Merrill Lynch. And, and from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, I was not allowed to call, say, for instance, Fidelity or Capital Research or Vanguard. I couldn't call them directly from the floor. I had to go through a broker. But 1997, they did away with those rules as long as you were properly registered and took all these tests and exams. So I did all that stuff. And I was able to then go direct to the client, which I did. And I built this great business. Um, and then in late in the late 90s, and then the turn of the century came. And if and if you remember, the turn of the century was all about that Y2K disaster, right? Now, the, how, the, how you know, we were going to switch from, you know, 1231.99 to 1100 and the world was going to fall apart and, and planes were going to fall out of the sky and utilities weren't going to run anymore because the way that the code, the, the software had been written, if you remember, and this was all during the 90s, this whole transition right. happened. But, you know, going from 1231.99 to 1100, the computer stopped, we were going backwards and not forwards and suddenly none of the stuff was going to work anymore which is why in the 90s was the biggest tech revolution that the world has ever known because they had to retrofit or, 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 or renew. People had to go out and replace their computers. They had to rewrite the software. Now, now you notice every, everywhere you go now, the year is written in four digital, four digits, not just the two. That was part of that problem. And it, although it sounds simple, it was not very simple because it was really a global phenomenon, right? Anyway, so we went through the turn of the century. The world did not fall apart. Uh, and then the push to begin to automate the, the capital markets, U.S. capital markets, uh, took hold. Um, and the rest of the world, Asia and Europe, had already modernized their markets. They were already trading electronically. They were already using computers to facilitate. We were not. And here we were, the biggest uh, developed market in the world with the biggest market. Um, and we were still trading face-to-face, human-to-human, pen-to-paper, right? And so when the turn of the century came, we all knew it was coming because it was in preparation during the whole decade. But it was right after the turn of the century when the world didn't fall apart, then they started to push the idea of automation and automatic order delivery via computer, execution via computer, then the delivery of the reports back to the client. So they were starting to eliminate what? They were eliminating the human being because that's what technology does, right? And so, um, so that started right after the turn of the century. So it, February of 2000. And it took us about six or seven months to, to go through the whole alphabet and convert every stock from um, uh, manual execution to automatic execution. And part of that is because they had to break the fraction. Remember, we traded in fractions of a dollar. We had to go to decimals in order for the technology to work. And so they, they did all that. In uh, They were doing all that all during the 90s in the back room, they were getting it all ready to go. And then we went through the turn of the century. Then they started to uh, implement it. 
So it took us, you know, six months because we had to, you know, convert the stocks from A to B, A to D, let them trade in decimals for, you know, three or four weeks to make sure the system would handle it. And then we took stocks E through G and did the same thing. So it took six months to go through the whole alphabet to get all these stocks to trade in decimals, which was really amazing as well, because to go through that transition you know, you were, some stocks were trading in fractions, other stocks were trading in decimals. The way they traded was different. The way you reacted was different. It was really an, another amazing moment. But this brings us all up to uh, what you want to talk about, because it brings us up to the events in 9-11. And what people have to understand uh, about that is I had my own business. I worked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange from, you know, nine in the morning till 4.30 in the afternoon. That's where I that's where I was. That's where I did my business. But I had an office on the 55th floor of two World Trade Center, which was the South Tower. My office was on the 55th floor looking out over the Hudson River. So I looked west over the Hudson River and I was smack in the middle of the building because it was, you know, 110 stories and I was on the 55th floor. And I had, you know, uh, <laughs> when I think about it, I had like this most amazing office and it wasn't, I don't mean it like the office was, you know, all walnut and beautiful and carved, not amazing like that. Amazing that here I was this kid from Boston, Massachusetts who moved to New York and it was kind of like, I made it. I had an office in the World Trade Center. I mean, just think about that for one minute, the World Trade Center. And I was on the 55th floor of the second tower and I had this spectacular view of the Hudson River, of the Statue of Liberty, of uh, New Jersey, of, you know, it was just, it was just, I used to go in there and I used to, <laughs> I laugh, I, I tell the story, I, I would go into my office and I'd dance, you know, pinch myself saying, if my friends could see me now, you remember that song, if my friends could <laughs> see me now? And so, and so that's what it was like. It was just amazing for me, right? Um, anyway, so that particular day, uh, I went to work. Now I used to get to work every morning at about quarter or seven. I, would, I lived up in Westchester. I would take the train to Grand Central, take the subway down to uh, downtown to Wall Street. I'd get off. I'd stop at the coffee cart. I'd get, get a cup of coffee. I'd go over to the Trade Center, and I'd press the button for the elevator. Now, here's, here's what you have to understand about this next part. The elevators, there were two banks of elevators. So the first bank took you from the lobby up to 46. So if you worked anywhere between 0 and 46, you would take this one bank of elevators. If you worked at 47 or higher, you had to take the one elevator up to the sky lobby on 46, walk around to the second bank of elevators, press the button, wait for that elevator to come, and that would take you from 46 up to 110. So since I was on the 55th floor, I used to have to take the two elevators, right? Now, when I used to get there quarter seven in the morning, I was there usually in the elevator by myself. So I didn't have to worry about somebody else pressing a button or three other people pressing buttons in the elevator going, you know, stop, stop, stop. So if I was on the elevator by myself, it might take me eight to 10 minutes. By the time you're waiting for the elevator, you got in the car, walked around, press the button, wait for the elevator, get in the, get in the car. Maybe it was five minutes if you had nobody else with you. But if you had three or four people in the cab with you all stopping at different floors, it could take you 12 to 15 minutes to get in or out of the building, Right. And so this particular morning, I got there, like I always did, at quarter seven. I had my cup of coffee. It was a spectacular day in, in the world and in New York City. The sky was blue. It wasn't a cloud. And I'm sitting there. I got the TV on. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my work. 
Now remember, it was September 11th. So the month of August had just ended. I had a bunch of bills on my desk because it was my business. So I would go through the bills every month and have to okay them and pay them, whatever. And about seven o'clock, the, the uh, four of the guys that worked with me, um, they showed up at their office, which is just across the hall from mine. Now they do all the work that they would typically do. Uh, and then at about five minutes of eight, they come into my office and they say, come on, we're going to go to breakfast over at the exchange. The exchange on the seventh floor of the exchange had this thing called the, the members luncheon club. So you had to be a member of the exchange in order to go there. And if you went there, they served breakfast and lunch. And it was really, that was really a classic um, historical. You have to see the room. The room is, the room reeks of history. Um, and it was a real, it, the, the New York Stock Exchange building is one of the most iconic buildings in Manhattan. Um, and the history that's in the building is just, you can feel it when you walk in. And so the members luncheon club up on the seventh floor was this grand um, restaurant. Uh, you know, I mean, it was just beautiful. It was walnut, you know, the, the walls were all walnut and, and gilded gold and, and carvings. And it was just, it was, it's just, it's just a spectacular room. But anyway, we would go over to have breakfast. I'd take these guys up to breakfast two or three times a week and or one or two times a week, depending on the week. And we'd talk about the business. We'd talk about what happened in the crowd this day or, 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 or what we, the, the news created this action. And I would explain to these kids that I would teach them about what was going on in the crowd because I was the one who was actually standing in the crowd. They were in the booth talking to, you know, maintaining the, the, uh, the order flow between the customer and me. I was the broker. So I was that guy running around. And so we used to go up there, you know, whatever it was, two times a week, three times a week. And we'd talk about, you know, different things. Some of it was education. So we'd just go up there and have breakfast and not talk about anything necessarily, right? And so uh, this one particular, this Tuesday morning, they came in and they said, come on, we're going to go to breakfast. And I said to them, I cannot go. I can't go because I got all this stuff on my desk. I all these bills. I said, you guys go. Don't worry about it. I'll meet you over there at nine o'clock. This one guy was fairly insistent. Said, no, 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 come on, we want you to come. Blah, blah. And I said, listen, I can't, I honestly can't go. I said, do me a favor, please, I can't go. Leave me alone, I'll be there at 9 o'clock. So they left. They left the, they left the floor of the building, the 55th floor, at 8 o'clock. They get all the way downstairs at about 8.10, 8.12. They start walking across the, 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 the street, the plaza, because the, 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 the trade centers were about three blocks away from the New York Stock Exchange. And as they walk outside, this one guy, the one guy that came in to say to me, come on, let's go to breakfast, he had a bug up his ass. For whatever reason this day, he just said to the other three, you guys go across the street, go get the table. I'm going back up to get Kenny. Now, he knows that he could have picked up the cell phone to call me to say, Kenny, come on, just come to breakfast. But he knows that I would have said, you're not listening to me, click and hang up the phone. So this kid... For whatever reason, and today, if you even ask him, he's got no answer for you. He got back in the elevator to come back up to the 55th floor to beg me to go to breakfast with them. So he now he gets back in the elevator at 8.10. He comes back upstairs. It's about 8.22, 8.23. He sticks his head in my office. And I looked at him and I said, Jonathan, what are you doing? I go, I thought you guys went to breakfast. He goes, Kenny, we did. But we got downstairs. It's a beautiful day. We want you to come to breakfast. You know, and I go, listen, I already told you I can't go. You're wasting my time. I really can't go. This kid, for whatever reason, was so insistent. He said he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And he said to me, we will come back at the end of the day, all of us, and we'll help you do whatever it is you need to do. 
You need to sort bills, pay bills, whatever it is. We'll all come back at the end of the day and help you. So I turned around because I could see this kid really wanted me to go to breakfast. And I turned around and I looked out the window and it was gorgeous, right? The sky was blue. It was just a beautiful September day in New York. Now, what you guys have to understand is I'm six foot, 235 pounds. I'm always hungry. It's not like I'm not hungry. Of course I'm hungry. <laughs> but I, you know, I just said I couldn't go that day. But this kid was so insistent. So I said, ah, screw it. You know, so I said, okay. So I picked up my smock. I left everything else on my desk and we walked out. Got in the elevator, went downstairs, got on the street about 8.35, walked across to the exchange. Now, the first building had hit at 8.48. I was out of the building now over at the New York Stock Exchange up on the seventh floor. So what you also have to understand now is the two World Trade Centers were side by side, the North Tower and the South Tower, but they're 110 stories high. The New York Stock Exchange building is three blocks away to the east, and it's only 21 stories high. So just imagine... 21 stories versus 110 stories, right? And then we're having breakfast on the seventh floor. So we're even lower in the building. So we're upstairs having breakfast when the first building gets hit. Now, here's the deal. Remember what I said? The first building got hit going north to south, way up on the 100, you know, between 80 and 100. And so the explosion, when the plane hit the building, the explosion went south, not east towards the exchange. It went south. And it was so, so high up. I never heard it. I never felt it. I had no indication that there was anything at all going on. We're eating breakfast, blah, blah, blah. We get done with breakfast. We get downstairs. I get in the elevator. I get downstairs. And you know when you're someplace and something's happened and there's all this commotion and people are running around and you don't really know what's going on. And so that's what it felt like when the, when the elevator door opened in the lobby of the New York Stock Exchange. And I looked at the guard and I said to him, I said, what's going on? Why, is this, why does it feel all this confusion? He said, look, a plane just flew into the side of the Trade Center. And you almost want to laugh because how could that possibly be? It's not like you can't see them. It was a spectacular day outside. And then you thought, you know what? Maybe it was like a commuter plane. The guy had a heart attack or something and flew into the building. It happened in 1946 at the Empire State Building, right on the 86th floor. Except the plane was a commuter plane and it didn't go through the building. It was kind of hanging out the side of the building, right? And he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, it, it was a jet. And, and so I, I looked at him like he's completely lost his mind. And I go, jets don't fly down the west side of, of Manhattan. It's just not part of the flight path. Mm. And I go, why would a jet fly into the Trade Center? He goes, just go outside and look. And so while I stepped outside of 11 Wall Street, and you couldn't see the, the Trade Centers right from there because of the way the buildings were. What you could see is when you looked up in the sky, you could see smoke and you could see kind of just shit flying around in the air. I thought to myself, you know what? I better run in and call my wife and tell her to turn on the TV to tell me what, what's going on. Now, unbeknownst to me, when the first plane hit the tower, the first tower, friends of mine who worked in Manhattan, who saw this happening on TV, who knew I had a World Trade Center address, called my wife mm. at eight, you know, at 850 to say to her, where's Kenny? What building is he in? What floor is he on? And my wife says, you know, why? Now you also have to understand it's 848. My, I had two daughters, one in ninth grade, one in sixth grade. My, they were just out to school. My wife's, you know, getting the house ready. She's not sitting around watching TV eating bonbons. So she had no idea what they were talking about. So they said to her, turn the TV on. 
So she turns the TV on and now she sees what everyone else had been seeing, right? That this first building, the second building hadn't been hit yet. So she hangs up the phone and she calls my office. Now, naturally, I'm not there, right? She calls the office, I'm not there. So the phone rings and rings and rings. Then she calls down to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And I wasn't there either because I was upstairs having breakfast. So the guy in the booth next to us picks up the phone and says to her, I haven't seen Kenny. Kenny's not here. So now she's panicking, right? Now, I don't know any of this because I was upstairs having breakfast. I don't even know what's going on outside the door yet. And so um, when she, when I dialed her, it was, it was like 8.58. It was three or four minutes before the Tower 2 got hit. And so when she picks up the phone, she's crying. And, and I don't know why she's crying. Like, I'm still not understanding. Like, Evelyn, why are you crying? Turn on the TV. Tell me what's going on. And she starts screaming at me saying, where are you? Where are you? And I'm like, I'm at work. Where are you? Kind of like, I was sarcastic. I'll be the first one to say it. Because I'm like, where the hell do you think I am? I'm at work. And so I go, turn on the TV and tell me what's going on. So she starts to tell me that, you know, they flew a plane in the Trade Center. Who's they? They is Al-Qaeda. Who the fuck is Al-Qaeda? I had no idea, like, any of this, right? And suddenly, she starts screaming into the phone. And I said, Evelyn, why are you screaming? And at that moment, she's watching live on TV as the second plane is coming around. Now, here's where it gets, here's where it gets very interesting. The second plane came around and hit the building from west to east. The exchange is east of the Trade Center. And because the second building got hit smack in the middle between 55 and 75, because it went in at an angle, so it had the wingspan that took out 20 or 25 floors. But when it came west to east, when it hit the building, the explosion came out the east side of the Trade Center, right towards the New York Stock Exchange. Now, the New York Stock Exchange was three blocks away, so it was not in danger of getting hit by the, the explosion, yet it was because it was lower in the building, the vibration and the sound and the impact of the explosion was clearly much more, um, was clearer and much more audible. Now, I'm standing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and I'm on the phone with her and she's screaming and I don't understand it. All of a sudden there was this massive explosion, mm. which was when the plane hit the building. And um, now I'm, now I'm screaming at her. What the fuck is going on? Because I can't see a thing right from on the floor of the exchange. And she starts screaming. They flew another plane. They flew another plane. And then suddenly the alarm at the exchange went off because now they're going to evacuate the building because now it's clear that this is not an accident. It's not radar gone crazy. It's clearly something different. Um, and when you think of America and you think of um, who we are as a nation, you think of capitalism, you think of freedom, you think of entrepreneur, you think of, uh, you know, you think of opportunity. And the New York Stock Exchange defines every one of those words because it, it the New York Stock Exchange represents all that, right? Um, and so while no one really understood or knew what was going on, it was clear that we were now under attack, that, that, that two jets flying into the World Trade Centers is not an accident. And so they, I was on the phone with her when they, the alarm sounded, and I said to her, 
I, I have to hang up and I have to get out of here because I don't know if I'm coming home today or not. And I want you to kiss the girls and I want you to remind them that daddy loves them very much because I had no idea what I was going to find when I walked outside. And if I'm going to die today, I'm going to die out in the street. I'm not going to die in some building and I can't see what's going on around me. But if I'm going to die, I'm going to die seeing that I'm going to die. Mm. And so we walked out the side of the building. And when we went out the east side of the building and they, the cops are out there and they were, they were uh, directing everyone to walk east towards the East River because the trade centers are on the west side towards the Hudson River. So they weren't letting people go west. They could only go east, which was, I was only going to go east anyway. Um, and, and, and what was really interesting is I, I got halfway down Wall Street, probably right in front of, you know, it might've been the Trump Tower at 40 Wall Street. It might've been the Deutsche Bank building at 60. It was somewhere right in that, right there. And you could turn around on Wall Street and look back. And at that point, you could see the top halves of the trade centers. And it was only at that moment that I realized or that I saw what people had been seeing, right? I could see the top halves of the buildings. I could see them engulfed in flames. I could see the smoke. And what I could also see without knowing or identifying that it was you or Varric, Billy or Susie or whatever, you could see the images of falling bodies without, I couldn't see who it was, but you could actually, I could actually see these bodies that were falling. And I kept wiping my eyes because it almost felt like this was a movie set. Like it almost, like it was surreal the way that it felt. But every time I kept wiping my eyes and looking and it was the same scene. And, and the cops were, you know, trying to get everyone to move away, move away, move away. So we walked east to the East River and then we started to walk north. Now look, you couldn't use your cell phone anymore because after the first building got hit, they knocked out the cell tower that was on the top of the building. So cell phones didn't work. And while there were still pay phones on the street corners, I wasn't sticking around to use a goddamn pay phone. Although there were people that were, there were lines of people with the pay phone. I ain't sticking around to work on a pay phone. So I walked down the East River and I started to walk north because I lived 50, I lived 50 miles north of Wall Street. I wasn't getting in the subway and, and you couldn't take, uh, you couldn't jump in a cab or anything because everything came to a standstill, right? Because they shut the bridges, they shut the tunnels. And so the traffic, the traffic just came to a standstill. And all you could hear as you're walking down the street, you could hear the sirens and the ambulances and the fire and the fire engines, you know, the, 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 the sirens going off. And as, you're, and as you're walking down the sidewalk, you could hear the radio announcer in all the cars because it was a beautiful day. And so all, everyone in their car had the window open. And it was almost as if every radio was tuned to the same station. As you're walking down the sidewalk, you could hear the sirens and then you could hear the radio announcers from the car. And then you could, you could hear a pin drop. Like it was that, you know, like it was that surreal. You didn't, people weren't, people weren't running around with their hair on fire, screaming and yelling. No one was even talking. People were just walking like drones. And so we walked and uh, we walked up to, I was fully prepared to walk all the way home that day. But we walked up um, from Wall Street and we got to, Chinatown. The first bridge down by Wall Street is the Brooklyn Bridge. The next bridge is the Williamsburg Bridge. The Williams, uh, the excuse me, the Manhattan Bridge. The Manhattan Bridge is what connects uh, uh, Brooklyn to Chinatown. The, the the Brooklyn Bridge connects Brooklyn to Wall Street, right? So we were at Canal Street in Chinatown. It took us about 
50 minutes to walk from Wall Street to where we were in Chinatown. <clears throat> and I got there to Chinatown and we're standing right at the top of Canal Street. And uh, suddenly there was this, this sound that sounded like planes above and it sounded like they were flying above us. And then it sounded like the streets were going to blow up. Like remember that movie Independence Day when you watch the movie and suddenly they were blowing up the whole city and the streets were blowing up. And I thought to myself, and I said to the guys, I was like, they're blowing up the goddamn city. Like they're blowing up the subways because that's what it sounded like. In fact, what it was, was the collapse of the first building. The rumbling, the sound of that building collapsing and the rumbling and the vibration. You could, I was probably about a mile and a half maybe a mile, mile and a half away from where the building was. So I was outside. I didn't get caught in the cloud because I was too far away. But the rumbling and the vibration in the whole city, you could feel it on the street as the building. And then you watched, right? You, that, that, that scene of the building collapse and all the, and all the smoke coming up and around. And here's what I thought at that moment, because the first building to collapse was actually the second building they get hit because the second building got hit way down in the middle of the building. So it weakened, there was 50 floors above it. So there was all this weight above it. The first building got hit way up here. So there was, although they were four or five or eight stories above it, the weight in the second building was so much more significant, right? Versus where it got hit. And so I remember thinking as I'm watching it, thinking that the building, the first building collapse was the building that I was in. And then I thought to myself, you know, I was looking at the guy who came back to get me and I, you know, I, I kept looking at the building and looking at him and looking at the building because like I couldn't even process that whole thing. Because then I started to wonder where would I, if he had not come back to get me, where would I have been? Well, I'm going to tell you where I would have been because there were four guys from the 55th floor who I knew, who survived, who I spoke to after the fact. And so what happened was the first building got hit. They sounded the alarms in both the trade centers telling everyone to exit the building, but you weren't allowed to use the elevators. You had to get out the stairs. And so the second building hadn't gotten hit yet. So everyone was exiting. So these, these guys uh, were exiting the building, which is what I would have done because I would have been, if the guy didn't come back to get me, I would have been in my office at 848 when the first building got hit. They would have sounded the alarm and I would have left the office to go down the stairs with these guys. Between 848 and 901 when the building got hit, the second building got hit, these guys went from the 55th floor to the 25th floor. They descended 30 stories in 12 minutes because remember the second building didn't get hit. So there wasn't all this pandemonium. So people were just going down the stairs. Right. And so you're going down and down and down and there was no panic. So people were just moving quickly. So they were on the 25th floor stairwell at 901 when this, when the building, when that building got hit and when that building got hit, you know, it could hit, like I said, between 55 and 75. The building, you know, got pushed like this. People got thrown off the stairwells. There was explosion, fire, all that shit. And there was complete pandemonium now in the stairway. And so it took them from 9.01 till about 9.55 to go from 25 out to the lobby. Mm -hmm. So in 12 minutes, they went 30 stories. It took them nearly an hour to go 25 stories after the building got hit, right? So now I think, where would I have been? Would I have been on the 25th floor? Would I have been with them? Would I have been on the 27th floor? Would I have been on the 24th floor? Would I have been stopping to help somebody? I mean, I, I don't, I don't, those are questions that are unanswerable, but that's where I about would have been. And then I think to myself, 
These guys get out of the building at, at, uh, at 9.50, let's call it 9.55, when they get out into the, to the plaza. Now, all around them are dead bodies and people jumping and fire and parts of the plane and all that shit right in the, right in the plaza or the trade centers. And then the buildings around the World Trade Centers, some of those were starting to collapse as well because they had been weakened and all that shit. And so there was pandemonium everywhere. So I think to myself, where would I have been after I spoke to these guys as I try to figure out where would I have been? Would I have been still stuck in the building? Would I have stopped to help somebody? Would I have stepped out into the plaza and have been so uh, shell-shocked that I, that I just stood there? And then if I stood there for too long, the building collapsed in four minutes after they got out. In four minutes, it collapsed. They get out at 9.55 and 9.56, the building collapsed at 10.01, right? And they got caught actually in the cloud. They were far enough away that they didn't get hit with the, with the debris, but they got caught in the cloud. So I think to myself, where would I have been? Would I, would, I have, would I have been stuck in the building? Would I have stopped to help somebody? Would I have got caught in the cloud? Would I have gotten caught in the, in the debris? And so, in fact, if you ask me, I would not be here talking to you right now because I just, I just think it would have been my, my moment. <clears throat> and so uh, after the first building collapsed, we started walking again. And then 10 minutes later, the same thing happened again when the second building collapsed. And then we walked all the way to Grand Central. And one of the guys that was his father was a lawyer who had an office at Grand Central. Because remember, the cell phones didn't work. So we got to Grand Central, which was closed at the time because they, they had closed all the public transportation, all that shit. And we went up to the father's office where we could use the landlines to call. I called my wife. I called my parents. I called, you know. Now, now it's 12 o'clock by the time I got to Grand Central. So it's been three hours since the last time I spoke to my wife. She's been witnessing everything on TV, not knowing where I was. Did I get caught? Was I caught? Was it, you know, where was I? She couldn't talk to me. The cell phones didn't work. And so it was three hours before I, I heard from her. And the other thing that happened was both my kids were in school and my older daughter went to a private school in Tarrytown, New York. And so the private school had, um, just like the public school too, but the private school had, you know, a list of all the parents and all the parents' work addresses and home addresses, all that stuff. And so the school immediately uh, sorted the file of parents, of kids, for kids at the school to look for any parent that had a World Trade Center act. I had a World Trade Center address. And so the school went around to the classes and took out any child whose parent, mother or father, had a World Trade Center address and took the child out of the classroom and said, you need to come with us. And they brought all these kids to the cafeteria. And they said to them, you need to call home because there's been, there's been an accident in Manhattan and you need to call home. And so they didn't tell these kids anything I'm like, you know, other than that. And so my daughter calls my wife and says, you know, mommy, what happened? They, they took me out of class. And so my wife tells her what happened about the trade center getting hit and collapsed. And my daughter said, where's daddy? And my wife said, well, he's coming home. Don't worry about it, Christina. He's coming home. Meanwhile, my wife really at that moment didn't really know if I was coming home because the building had collapsed. It'd been all that disaster downtown. So she didn't really know if I was coming home. I wasn't coming home. And my daughter said, are you sure that daddy's coming home, mommy? Are you sure that daddy's coming home? And so my wife assured her that I was coming home. 
They went, they got her, they brought her home. They went to the other school. They brought my other daughter home. There were people at my house that had come over because no one really knew. And then at 12 o'clock when I was finally able to call, uh, I assured her that now I in fact was coming home because I was in midtown Manhattan. Now I escaped downtown. And that I didn't know how I was going to get home, but I was going to walk home. However I was getting home, I was going to walk home. And, uh, and that was it. And so we came down and I was fully prepared to walk home, except they opened up Grand Central again, like they opened up Penn Station and they just wanted people to get out of the city. So they were just saying that they would just with the bullhorns, get on a train, get out of the city, just get on a train, get on a train. So I got on the train. And if you've never been to Grand Central, Grand Central is, is, a, is a spectacular train station in the middle of Manhattan that's, that's got two levels. It's got a ground level and it's got a subterranean level. Naturally, the train I had to get was on the subterranean level. So I had to go downstairs, right? The last place I wanted to go was underground. But I thought to myself, you know, let me just get on the train. So I got on the train and the train was packed shoulder to shoulder, standing room only. There was nobody who was even talking. You could hear people crying. You could hear people praying. But nobody was really, no one was talking. And when the train doors shut, it takes about 12 minutes to go from the station through the tunnel in Grand Central until you come up at 125th Street, which is then up and outside. And it's about a 12-minute ride. And so when you're on the electric train, you know, if you, when you're on an electric train and the train starts to move, you get the blue sparks and the lights flash and all that shit, and it all comes back on. So when the trains pulled out of the station, the, you got the blue spark, the lights went out and people gasped because, you know, right away you're thinking, okay, they're going to blow the, they're going to blow the train up or the, or the tunnel's going to blow up and I'm never going to get out of here. You think all the worst things you can think of, you know, the train moves through the tunnel and nobody said a word. And when the train comes up at 125th street, it came up, it turns left and then it turns north again. Right. And when it turns left, for, for a fleeting moment, you have this, this spectacular view right down the west side of Manhattan. On a clear day, you can see the Statue of Liberty. That's how, that's how, that's the view you get, right? The whole west side, the Hudson River, you can see everything. And so when the train came up and made the left, everybody on the train kind of leaned over to look out the window. And all you saw was that cloud of smoke. Now, look, it was 12 o'clock. It was three hours, it was two hours after the building collapsed. But if you remember, that cloud of smoke just hung there. It didn't just disappear. It, it hung there. And so when the train made the, you know, it turned and everyone looked and they were, they were gasping at what they saw. Because what you didn't see were the trade centers were gone. And all you saw was that cloud. So we stayed in the train. Blah, blah. By the time I got home that day, it was 2.30 or so. And I walked in the house and there were all these people in my house. And I walked in and I kissed my wife and I kissed the girls and, you know, thanked all these people who come to my house. And then I sat on the couch to watch TV because I hadn't, I hadn't seen what you and everyone else had been watching for hours. I hadn't seen any of it. And so I sat on the couch and I just watched TV and I didn't leave the couch for three days. I was just, I was just, I was just staring at the couch. Like I, and you remember what it was like. It was just playing and playing and playing and the scene of the plane hitting the building and the explosion and the, and the collapse. I just, I just was, I was just like this. I, I just couldn't move off the, off the couch. And then come to find out on the Friday, uh, one of my very dearest friends from elementary school called me up to check in on me to see if I was all right. And said to me, how you doing? And I said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm still stunned. 
at the people I've lost, at the people I don't know if I've lost, that I'm just stunned. And he said to me, he makes this comment about, you know, did you talk to Sue? Sue's this girl that we grew up with in, outside of Boston. We went to high school together. Our families were friends with her families and we all went to high school. We were all friends. I said, no, why would I talk to Sue in the middle of all this? And he said to me, because Sue's younger brother, Teddy, was a year younger than us, two years younger than us, was on the plane that flew through my building, mm. which I didn't know. And when he said it to me, I was, I said, what? And he told me that again. And I hung up the phone. I called my mother and I go, Ma, why wouldn't you tell me that? She said, I couldn't tell you. She said, I just couldn't, I couldn't lay that on you on top of everything else. I don't know how you, because my mother lived in Boston. So it wasn't like she was right next to me. I'm in New York. And so my mother and father were, they felt, um, you know, they were, they were far away from me. So my mother said, I didn't, I, I couldn't say it to you. Okay. And so um, I just, I just was shocked again, right? There's another person, a kid I went to, kid I grew up with that happened to be on a plane that went right through my office of all, of all things, right? And so um, the exchange didn't open, you know, obviously for the rest of that week, for those of you who remember, right? The Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday didn't open. Um, but what became apparent and what people in this country don't know about what happened in those days was as the country transitioned and as the exchange transitioned to all this technology um, and automation, all the cables and fiber optic cables and, and telephone cables that connected the New York Stock Exchange out to the world and connected the world into the New York Stock Exchange all ran through a conduit that started at the at the belly of the trade centers and went out under the Hudson River, under the Hudson River, and then out to the country. And when mm. the buildings collapsed, that conduit got crushed and all the wires got severed. And so now the New York Stock Exchange, in fact, got neutered, right? It couldn't work. The New York Stock Exchange did not, no longer function. All the technology was useless. You could turn the computer on at the New York Stock Exchange, but it, but, but it wouldn't do anything because the connections were severed, right? So there was no information. And so that became apparent to us in the industry almost immediately. And so the industry worked very hard. They, had a, they, they, they brought guys in from around the country to rewire the building. In the middle of all this, in the middle of this tragedy, it became very apparent that we as a nation we're screwed because our capital markets, you know, the New York Stock Exchange was still human based and there was one single location and there was no backup plan. Who had a backup plan for an event like that? And the rules were such that you couldn't trade New York Stock Exchange stocks on NASDAQ because you couldn't do that. And besides the fact is that Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers, Kenneth Fitzgerald, Smith Barney, Dean Witter, all had offices in the trade center. They were all destroyed. And so you couldn't open up the markets and say to all those brokers, oh, I'm sorry, you, you know, sorry about your office, but you can't play, but we got to open up the market. You couldn't do that because then they would have disadvantaged people. If you were a client of Merrill Lynch's or Smith Barney and you wanted to sell your stock, you wouldn't be able to do it. And so um, in six days, and you have to think about how amazing this was in six days that not only did they rewire the whole building, and it was put together with spit banding. It was certainly not, it certainly was not well done, but it was put together with fit bandits. But they also had to find spaces to relocate all these brokers that now had 
no offices, right? Now, at the time, the meatpacking district was um, going through its own transition. So there were a lot of warehouses in the meatpacking district that were empty, weren't being used. They converted those warehouses almost overnight. They brought in picnic tables. Bloomberg delivered Bloomberg machines. Just take them, just deliver them. Verizon, all kinds of phones. It was unbelievable to me when I try to explain to you in six days how they, how they relocated these brokers, they rewired the New York Stock Exchange with spitting Band-Aids, and they, um, because we had it prepared to open, because here's the other thing that you have to understand. Now, here you are on Monday, you've worked, you know, you're 60 years old, you've worked your whole life, you've got money in a 401k, on Monday it's worth whatever, $5 million in your 401k, and it's all invested in stocks, and you're happy. Now on Tuesday, this event happens, and now you, you say, screw it. Uh, I don't own stocks. I want my money. So now you know that the New York Stock Exchange is not opening on Tuesday, clearly because it can't. But on Wednesday morning, you, you pick up the phone, you call your broker and you say, uh, hey, Sam, I want to sell all my stocks. And Sam says, uh, mm, I can't because the markets aren't open. So I, I, you can't sell your stock. Uh, okay, I'll call you back tomorrow. So on Thursday, you call Sam and you go, Sam, I, I want to sell all my stocks. You can't because the market's not open. So now you start to think, okay, on Monday, my account was worth $5 million. And now this whole story is unfolding. And then they're talking about a second event. And then they're talking about potentially Europe and Asia. And now you're talking about a disaster. And you're talking about what's my account worth now? Now, it goes from $5 million to $4 million. You're, you, right? you're losing your mind. Now think about this for a minute. Now you're an investor in Europe or you're an investor in Asia who also invest some money in the United States, the same way we invest money in Europe and in Asia. So now you're sitting in Asia or you're sitting in Europe and you call your broker and you say to your broker, I want to sell all my U.S. stocks. And the broker says, I can't because the U.S. markets are closed, right? That couldn't sell anything. NASDAQ, nothing, 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 nothing. The markets did not trade. So now investors around the world are starting to do what? They're starting to get anxious and nervous as well. And so now you see this building anxiety that's coming around the world like this, like, like, like people now are getting fearful. And so it was, it was incumbent upon the United States and the industry to make sure that we could get the exchange up and running in the middle of all this mess because it is really the, the work of the nation, right? They're having a functioning exchange and really the exchange functions in the global financial space, right? Money moves around the world 24 hours a day. Trading starts in Asia and it goes to Europe and it comes to the United States. And when we close, it goes back to Asia, right? 20, it follows the sun around the world. So during those six days, um, you know, it was nine o'clock in the morning. So Asia was already closed on Monday. Uh, it was, it was it, I mean, on Tuesday. Uh, now it was Tuesday afternoon in Europe when this event happens. Uh, European stocks start to decline on the back of that news. But then when Europe closes and, you know, it's time for the New York Stock Exchange to open, it doesn't open because there's no, so money stops. And then uh, it starts again up in Asia the next day. But now the biggest player in the market is taken out of the market. And so now global markets start to come under pressure because now no one knows what the hell is going on. And so uh, they worked around the clock for five days. We had to come down over the weekend to test the systems. We had to test the phone lines. We had to test the computers. But nobody really knew come Monday morning whether or not it was really going to function because the expectation was that uh, people were going to pick up the phone and call their broker and say, sell my stocks. And so that the market was going to come under tremendous sell pressure at a time when it's put together with spitting Band-Aids, right? 
And so we came to work on the Monday morning. I came on Saturday, I had to come on Sunday and you could only come down as far as the Brooklyn Bridge. And then there were rings of National Guard and you had to walk from Brooklyn Bridge down to the exchange and you had to have your license, you had your building pass and you had to, you had to prove who you were at each checkpoint uh, to get in. And so we went into the exchange on Saturday, we went on Sunday, picked up the phone, dialed the phone, make sure it worked. Uh, make sure the computers work. You didn't really know if they, you, you, we tested them, but you didn't really know on Monday if it was going to work. And so on Monday, we, everyone, you know, everyone who, everyone who could come back to work came. There were people who just refused to come. And remember this, this event, at the World Trade Center was, was, was still happening, right? I mean, it was, it wasn't like it, okay, on Monday it was gone. It, it wasn't. Um, and so everyone who came back, came back. Uh, and they had, you know, they had Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer, who were elected officials. They had the mayor. They had policemen and firemen. They had uh, EMT workers on the floor of the exchange. And they had all of us, all the brokers and support people. And they had this woman, and you can Google it because she's on the YouTube. It's uh, Rose, Roseanne or Rosemary. She's a, she's a, she's a, uh, She's an, she was a member of the army um, and she was, and she sees, she sings an acapella. And so they shipped her in and they brought her to the New York Stock Exchange. And there she was standing on the podium that morning in her complete dress uniform. And at 9.15, they rang the bell once and they, and everyone, everyone gets quiet. They ring the bell once and everyone gets quiet. And they make this announcement that um, this woman is going to sing God Bless America. So she starts with no music. She starts to belt out God Bless America in acapella. And there's 5,500 people standing there and, and listening to this woman. And the emotions are running up and down and they're high and, and who's upset and who's crying and you're missing somebody and who didn't come back and your, your mind is racing. And this woman sings God bless America. And then they, um, then they, there were a couple, couple of people made speeches and then they rang the bell at 930. And when they rang the bell at 930, you could feel everybody in the room just go, oh. And kind of hold their breath because when they flip the switch at 9:30, turn on the computers, it was either going to work or it wasn't. Right? The market was going to function or it wasn't. And if the market failed, there would have been complete pandemonium, not only in this country, but there would have been financial pandemonium around the world because people around the world wanted out. Sell my stocks, sell my stocks. And so when the market opened. You could hear the hum of the computers. You could see the ticker tape start to move. And then immediately the onslaught of sell orders, the market just got slammed with sell orders and sell orders and sell orders. And, you know, brokers were running around and they, like my handheld computer, which is how I now did my business, was just overloaded with sell orders. And you're trying to represent it and do it. You ran around all day um, and you just did the work of the day. And at four o'clock when the bell rang, is when it became completely emotional because everyone held it together all day. But at four o'clock when the bell rang and the market was down 500 or 600 points. And in, 19, and in 2001, down 600 points was a huge move in the stock market and, and uh, on incredible volume. What you realized is that when the bell rang 
as ugly as it was from a finance, from a financial perspective, like the losses that people suffered. It was as if everybody in the country locked arms. You know when you lock arms and you stand up and everyone's got their arms locked like this? It was like the, you could feel the whole country stand up and say, okay, you son of a bitch. You can't even you knocked us down and you even kicked us in the balls. But guess what? Now we stood up and we did not fail. This country didn't fail. As ugly as it was in the stock market, we're coming back. And we came back and we're, now we're coming to get you. And now the rest of it from there is kind of history. The markets had a couple of volatile weeks after that because there was so much damage done. Um, but then we recovered and, uh, you know, and, 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 then, and you know, then the personal stuff starts to happen to you, to me, right? Because then I started to recognize you'd hear more and more people who you didn't know got killed, got killed or, or, or refused to come back or, um, the thing that was really, really difficult for me was people I knew who died, I knew they died. So there was closure and finality. As, as difficult as it was, I knew that that person was gone. It was the people who you didn't know that died, who you didn't know and didn't know that died. And, I, and so let me explain that. Every day I'd get up, when I'd get to work, I'd get off the subway train and I'd go to the coffee counter. And I'd get there every morning at quarter of seven. And every morning you were there and Varric was there and Mary was there. Now we all came from different places. I didn't even know your name. I didn't know where you worked. But every day you were there getting coffee at the same moment I was. And you did it day after day, week after week, year after year. And so we knew each other, right? We knew each other because we would see each other. I didn't know anything about you. I didn't know about your family. I knew nothing about you. But I knew enough when I saw you every morning. I said, hey, good morning. How are you? How was your weekend? Oh, it's a hot day today. Oh, it's raining out. Whatever. You'd carry on those conversations. And it's those people that never returned, that are always in the back of your mind. And you say, I wonder what happened to that person. I wonder what their family was like. I wonder if they had children. I wonder if they made it home and you don't know because they never showed back up. Now, that could be because they got killed. It could be because they refused to come back because so many people refused to come back to the city after that happened. And so, and so that was a really difficult part of, of me trying to deal with and recover from this event. And, and one of the other things that, that helped me was um, my wife was a member of a Bible study in the town that we lived in. And I never went to this Bible study. I mean, I'm, I'm Catholic and I was brought up Catholic, but I never went to a Bible study. And my wife used to go to this Bible study. And so um, on the Saturday of that week, so it was whatever it was, the 14th, I guess. The, yeah, 14th. The women from the Bible study wanted to have the couples come over, right? Husbands and wives come to this Bible study. And they wanted me to come because of the experience that I just had and they wanted to support, do all that stuff. And so my wife convinced me to go to this Bible study. I wasn't really, I didn't wanna go, I'll be honest. I didn't wanna go, but she convinced me to go. And um, I went to this Bible study and there were you know, eight other couples there. You know, I knew some of the women, I didn't know any of the husbands. And uh, 
they do this whole, we did this whole reading of the Bible and they picked out different passages and, and um, suddenly all the men got up and made a circle around me. And they all came and they put their hands on me and they, and they just prayed. And they just asked for guidance and they asked for peace and they asked that I'd be okay. And it was this, it was this incredible moment where I suddenly felt I don't want to say at ease because it wasn't really at ease, but I just suddenly felt like um, calmness, right? This calm came over me. Um, I'll never forget that, but it was, it was at that moment. And then um, we did that for a couple more weeks with the couple things. And then the men decided to break away, uh, which I also thought was, I, that was actually very interesting because, you know, men need their space too, right? It's not just about, you know, this couple thing. And listen, women have Bible study all by themselves and they get to talk about women's shit. Well, guess what? What I realized is when the men get together, we talked about men's shit, right? right? And the difficulties and the challenges and the requirements and the pressure and trying to be everything, everybody and trying to provide and trying to be a daddy and trying to be a husband and trying to, you know, pay the bills and get up every day and work hard. And I'm not taking anything away from any of the women. Because they do the same thing. And I'd be the first one to say my wife had a very difficult job as a mother, staying home and trying. I'm not taking that away. But what I'm saying is men also have the need to want to talk to other men about life and about difficulties. And, you know, most men, oh, you know, most men will walk around like everything's perfect and nothing ever bothers them. And I don't have a care in the world and I'm the greatest and all that shit. You know what? It's shit because everyone's got a fucking problem, right? And and what I and what I realized in that in that men's Bible study was not only was that so true, but that uh, I actually enjoyed it because it was a place it was a place where you just peeled back the onion, and as long as you felt safe with the seven or eight guys that were in the room, you could say anything and know that. This was our safe little circle and you could cry, you could laugh, you could, you know, you could become vulnerable and you didn't, you didn't, you weren't ashamed. You weren't ashamed. You just were like, look. And so that's that story from that day. And, uh, you know, it took me, it took, I, I will say, I went through survivor's guilt, especially when I went to, um, funerals because I went to a lot of funerals and I thought to myself guys that were my age who had the same thing I had they had young kids they had young families they were in the building the same way I was why I, I would ask myself constantly why did why was that guy to come back to get me why was he so adamant why did he for literally he literally forced me out of the building and if you ask him today he'll say I, I don't know I just wanted him to come to breakfast and so for whatever reason that is, you know, people would say to me, you know, it wasn't your time. And, and I understand that when people say that, they're trying to, they're trying to, they're trying to be nice. But you know what, when you say it wasn't my time at that moment, it doesn't really help because I had so many friends that I lost and people that I knew that I lost that it wasn't fair for someone to say to me, Kenny, it wasn't your time when I was in the same place that they were. 
And yet I got out. Only by the grace of God did I get out. For whatever reason, their time was up and mine wasn't for whatever reason. And I had a really, really difficult time with that for a while. I really needed to try to figure that out. I really need to understand why that kid that was two years younger than me, who had three young kids at home in Boston, got on a plane that day that flew through my building. I, I, like, and the only thing those parents had when they went, and it was only, it was three or four months later before they had anything, was when when they when the cleanup crew was doing, you know, they would sift everything looking for body parts and whatever. They found a finger. A finger, not even a full finger. And they did the DNA analysis on it and they found out that this finger belonged to this kid. And they delivered the finger to the mother and father up in Boston. And that's all those parents had. And so I had a really, really difficult time with that. And so, um, and it and it took me a while, and I'll be the first to say it. It took me a while to, you know, I I I did what I was supposed to do. I got up every day. I went back to work. I tried to make money. I tried to support my family. I tried to do everything that, as a man, I was expected and required to do. So I didn't fail in my expectations of being a husband and a father and whatever. But internally, I was just, I was just kind of like a wreck trying to trying to figure out how to sort it all out. And it was those, you know, it was those seven or eight guys from the Bible study that actually really helped me because they were all different ages. There were some guys that were 70 and there were guys that were 30. Um, I was the only one. Uh, I was the only one that had that story. None of these other guys, while they worked in Manhattan, they were, they were far away. They were in Midtown. They were uptown. They weren't anywhere near it. They didn't have that same experience. Um, so look, I, I can keep talking, but I'm sure you don't want me to, because we've been talking for an hour already. So, no, I, I think this is, this has been absolutely wonderful. There's so many things I know, I know that we are limited on time and there, there's a lot of things that I'd want to ask, but you, you are talking here about, it took time to process. And, and I know that we as a nation and as really a world are coming through a, a global pandemic and, and we're in our own economic crisis. And a lot of people have lost those that they've loved. And a lot of people, you know, you, you lose people that you knew years ago yeah. and, and, and you're, you're here. You're still here, right? Uh, we, you know, we, we lost a lot of people that we knew. Uh, we lost friends as well, and uh, we, you know, had some families. They lost four or five people in their family. And and so, what advice would you give someone that is going through this current crisis and finds themselves here and doesn't really understand that? I, I, you know what? And I, I I'm not sure that will understand it because I don't profess to understand why that still happened, whether it's COVID, whether it's 9-11, whether it's other things that happened to us along the way in our life. I don't profess to necessarily understand why it happens. But what I do understand is that bad things do happen and you can't necessarily always find a reason to pinpoint on why this person or why that person or right? Other than I've come to the realization that um, I believe in I believe in a higher power. I believe in a God. I believe in 
that there's a plan for everybody. I believe that there is an afterlife. I believe that, uh, you know, th there's a, there's a time and a place, right? There's a time and a place for everybody. And that time and place has, in my mind, has, has already been carved in stone. My, yeah, my day wasn't on 9-11, but my day is coming. I don't know when it is, but it is coming. And I think that the only thing I could say is that, um, you know, relish the relationships you have, understand that maybe there are some things that are unexplainable, but know that, know that the person you lost is waiting for you in the next place and that they're, and that they're, that they're going to be there with open arms and that they're watching over you because as far as I'm concerned, I think it was, I think it was my four grandparents that were watching over me that day. I think the four of them were looking down saying, no, not yet. It's not his time. And this guy had to go get him. I absolutely believe that. To I'll believe that till the day I die. That it was my four grandparents that just said, not yet. And that's the only reason I'm here. I really, I really believe that. I believe that. I believe that. I also believe because ever since then, I've done things that I'm not sure I would have done in terms of, you know, I'm not now I'm, you, you mentioned it at the beginning, like this Headstrong Project, which is this veterans charitable organization that I joined, uh, that my wife and I both joined when you know, it was launched in 2012 to help returning veterans who suffer from the mental wounds of war, not the physical wounds of war, but the mental wounds of war. It was when, when we were approached to get involved, I looked at my wife and I said, this is one of our ways of giving back to these to these to these young men and women who raised their hand to go fight a war that they didn't necessarily want to fight. But, you know, I was 40 years old at the time, so no one was taking me, but, and so this was one of the ways, right? And so the people I met through that organization, the, the veterans I met through that organization have changed my life in ways I can't even begin to tell you when you hear their stories or you see their struggle or you, or you, or you understand, you know, what they went through and, and um, it's, I, I can't really pinpoint it, but it's, 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 there are things that happened that um, things that have happened to me since that I'm not sure I would have happened to me had all this other stuff happened to me. And, 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 and I became much more aware of, of, what was around me and not so much. It wasn't about, you know, wasn't all about me anymore. It was, mu it was a much bigger conversation to have. Uh, I'm not sure that really answers your question, but no, it does. Like it's difficult, right? It's, it's, it's one of those unanswerable questions, but I will tell you um, the guy thing, I think is really, I think it's so underrated. I think people don't understand that, right? There's this, there's a healing quality about guys talking to guys about guy issues, whether we're doing it over zoom, whether we're doing it in a, you know, at the bar, just us, whether we're doing it out to dinner, but being able to peel back the onion and be vulnerable and, and, and um, be honest, right. To be honest. You know, and you said earlier, everybody is going through something and we yeah. don't know what they're going through. You see them at the grocery store, you see them in That's traffic, right. whatever. Um, Kenny, it was, it was amazing hearing you and watching you talk about uh, the community that developed to those seven or eight guys that came yeah. around you uh, and supported you and, and, and did life with you during that time. Um, 
What a powerful message of the importance of community. Yeah. And I got to tell you, what's really interesting is I'll tell you this part. I lived in a, I lived in a town called Armonk, New York, which is in Westchester County. And if you're a Yankees fan, you'll know this name, Bernie Williams, who was the center fielder uh, at the Yankees, lived in this community. And his son and our daughter were the same age, and they went to school together. And that's how my wife, my wife is also Puerto Rican. Bernie and his wife are Puerto Rican. And uh, when the kids went to school, that's how my wife, because it was, it was his wife's Bible study that my wife used to go to. And so when we went to that Bible study, not only was, now I, I, I got to know Bert. And so, uh, but uh, Manny Rivera was also part of this. Manny Rivera was oh, wow. a pitcher, right? And he was also, he lived in Purchase, New York. And he and his wife were also part of this Bible study. And it was Manny Rivera who now is very religious, very religious. And I actually think he, he acts like as a pastor now at this church and that he's basically funded in Purchase, New York. He was the one who got the other men to come around me. He was the one who put his hands on me. He mm. was the one that led that prayer. And, and I say that to you because it was such an emotional moment when he did that. I'll never forget it. Like, I'll never forget it. And then, and then you know, we ended up being, it was him, it was Bernie, it was me, and then it was you know, four other guys uh, in this Bible study. And uh, it was, as you can imagine, it was a very interesting Bible. <laughs> it was great. I mean, it was great, but it was it, it was definitely part of that healing process for me, for sure. Um, sure. And you know, look, I I, I can talk about this, um, and there are times where I can talk about it, and I'm I'm completely good, and there are other times where I talk about it and I get emotional, right? And so and so, I'm not going to apologize about getting emotional because. I have no reason to apologize. Nor should you. And so, but, but I think what, I think what it shows is that the pain is still deep there. Right. When I think of my kids, when I think of that moment that I potentially was never going to see my wife and kids again, and the people I know who were not able to see their wife and kids again, I get really like, it. like that's when it gets emotional for me again. Right. Now my kids today are 35 and 32 years old. And so, they're great. Um, but when I tell that story and I get to the kids, part, like when they drag my daughter out of class and, you know, the poor kid, I can only imagine what was going through her mind. You know what I mean? Have you so, talked to her about that? Did she remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was in ninth grade. She was 15 years old. She, wow. she very clearly remembers it. Oh, very clearly mm-hmm. remembers it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. She very clearly remembers but she just your your wife said dad's coming home and and that was the end of it. She my well she my wife it. assured my she believed my wife. My wife assured her. Now my wife didn't really know whether or not I was coming home because yeah. remember I had hung up my at nine o'clock in the morning, and then all that shit happened, and that yeah. conversation happened in between the twelve o'clock call when I called my wife back. So while my wife said to her daddy's coming home, my wife really wasn't sure that daddy was coming home, yeah. but she tried to assure the kid that daddy was coming home that night. If I didn't end up coming home, I don't know what that conversation would have been. But in fact, I did come home, right? And I was very lucky to have come home. And trust me, I, 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 I thank God every single day, every single day. And you know what? There was a very interesting, and I, I have to find it. But you know those calendars 
that people have either on the desk or by their bedside, the ones that the, the, the religious ones that have a saying on it every day. Yeah. And so on September 11th of that year, um, the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the phrase that day, let's go back out to find out, you know, the phrase, cause it comes right out of the Bible, but it was a phrase like, um, you know, blessed be your God for he hath saved you. It was like something like that. Wow. Mm. And, and it, that calendar mm. sat on my nightstand. Right. And remember, I told you, I didn't go to bed for three days. I just sat on the, I didn't go up to my bedroom. And when I went up to my bedroom on the Friday and I went over to my bed and the calendar was still on nine 11. And that was the phrase I had to get it actually. Cause, but it was something like that, that when I looked at, when I looked at the phrase on the calendar, I broke down because, because he did save me that day. He absolutely did save me that day. There's not, not even a question about it. However, whoever he sent to save me, like that guy is the guy he sent to save me, right? That's the guy who saved my life that day. So, so, so since then, you, you've continually thanked God every single day. Every probably day. Had a day. Every and how day. many of us take those days for granted, right? How many of us just, God, man, this today is driving me nuts. I just wish this day would be over. And yet your perspective is completely different. Yeah. And listen, I, I have some of those days where I go, you know what? Screw it like that. But, <laughs> but every night when I get into bed, uh, I thank God every morning when I wake up, I thank God. And you know, what's also, I have a, there's a, I have a cross, uh, that sits on my, my nightstand. That was my great grandmother's cross. And the, for mm. some reason, when I was a kid, there was just something about this cross that, that I just liked. And when my great grandmother passed away and then it went to my grandmother, and uh, when my grandmother passed away, I took the cross because I wanted this cross. And uh, uh, that cross sits on my nightstand. That cross sits on my nightstand, which is why, like when I say to you, uh, I I'm sure it was my grandparents that day that just said, not today. It's not, it's not his day. Anyway, mm -hmm. listen, guys, I, I hate to do this, but I have to jump on thing. another Zoom. But yes, I'm sir. happy to come back and visit with you again and talk more about this or talk about Love whatever to. else you want to talk about. But okay, I can't, so and much. I apologize because I don't want to leave you hanging like this, no, but I, I have to go. The audience is going to learn so much from your personal experience. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to, to have been here with you guys. I enjoyed this conversation. And trust me, I got so much more to say. I'm happy to do it with you again. Hey, awesome. we'll get with you back. I still want to hear how Yankees players put up with a guy from Boston. Uh, <laughs> well, it was funny. We just didn't talk baseball. That was it. Uh, but you right. know what? I, I love to cook. And so every time when, when Bernie Williams would come to my house, it would be all about food. I didn't talk <laughs> about baseball. We didn't talk. You know what? I think he actually appreciated the fact because everyone that used to see with all they'd want to do is talk about baseball. And I think the poor guy actually respected the fact that I didn't do that with him. Right. That, yeah. you know, I wasn't going to sit here and quiz him about every game and every play, you know, that I, that's not what I was going to do. In fact, when we get together with the girls, we would talk about food because I love to cook and they would come over and I would cook. And so I think he really actually appreciated the fact that I wasn't one of those guys just trying to, you know, hammer him about, you know, what's it like, what's it like, what's it like, you, you know what I mean? I right. think that's great. And then you've got to get to your, you got to get to your next. Yeah, call. I got to get, they're probably waiting. Appreciate on me. you so much. Thank you, right. so, Thank much. you so much, Kenny. Yeah. I'll talk to you guys, huh? All right. Let's do it See again. You.
Guys, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Mr. Fitz. We would like to thank Kenny for being so generous with his time and his insights. What an amazing story of overcoming adversity. Kenny has agreed to come on the show again, so look for the next episode with Kenny Polcari. If there's a question you have about our show, please drop us a line at info at mrfitz.io. Join our community at www.mrfitz.io. If there's a thought leader who's been helpful for you, we would love suggestions for future guests. Until next time, let's strive to make every piece of your life fit. Thank you.